You're listening to Writers on a New England Stage with Judy Bloom. This program originally aired in 2016. I'm Virginia Prescott. Today, a special word of mouth. It's Writers on a New England Stage with Judy Bloom, recorded live at the Music Hall in Portsmouth. Judy Bloom was one of the first authors to write frankly about the confusing, often humiliating transition from childhood to adolescence. Her best-known books were published in the 1970s. Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, Deanie, Blubber, and Forever offered young readers plain language and shame-free stories about periods, bullying, sexual urges, and even going all the way. Her subsequent novels for adult readers extended her appeal far beyond puberty. Judy Bloom finally tells her own story in the novel, In the Unlikely Event. It said in 1952, when three planes crashed into her hometown of Elizabeth, New Jersey, over a 58-day span. I sat down with Judy Bloom on stage at the Music Hall to ask her about those successive tragedies, which really did happen, even if the setup sounds like fiction. Yes, it was crazy. crazy. You know, I mean, if that happened today, can you imagine... We would, it would be on television, it would be constant, we would be bombarded by images. But we as kids, um, I was 14 at the time, I've made Miri 15, I've made her a year older. Uh, you know, we knew certain things, but not everything. But I don't think we read the newspapers, and that's where the coverage was. I and mean, there was a lot of talk about about it, and there were, you know, there were kids who were involved, so... Is this your story, in a it way? It is not, it is not my story, and the thing that's amazing to me is that I've been a writer for, I don't know, the other night somebody added it up and said 47 years, but it's certainly 40-plus years. To have a story like this inside you and never tell it, makes absolutely no sense. Well, especially for someone who's been writing so many books. And I actually read that your daughter is a commercial pilot, and you never told her this story. She was a commercial airline pilot, that's true. I never told anyone. I've been with George, my beloved there, who's in the audience for 37 years, and I never told anyone the story. It's not that I was keeping this secret from them. It's that I must have buried it so deep. I mean, I knew it. You know, if you had come up to me and said, hey, let's talk about what happened in 1952 when you were a kid in Elizabeth, I would have talked to you about it. But I never told anyone about it. And I tell anyone anything (laughs) and everything. (laughs) Everything you never wanted to know. I'm right there to tell you. But this story, for some reason stayed inside me until, you know, the day came when, when it just all came all at once. Why now, do you think? Because I was at a writer's seminar, and there was a lovely young woman on stage who has since become very well-known, Rachel Kushner, and she was talking about her first book and how the ideas came from her mother telling her stories about growing up in Cuba as... as that was true for her, in the 50s. But what I heard was stories about growing up in the 50s, in the 50s, in the 50s. And it was that OMG moment when I, I knew that I had to tell this. And before I left 
that auditorium that afternoon, it was as if I had this whole book in my head, which never, ever happens to me, mm. with characters and, you know, intertwining lives and um, all set against a background of tragic events. But the, the story is fictional, and the story is not a story of tragedy, but as one of, you know, how things happen in life, but you go on. Mm. And you get up and you go to school, you go to work, you fall in love. All of these things happen, and they're happening to my fictional characters against a background of true stories, mm. because everything about those planes was true. Every character that I put on those planes was really on the Yeah, planes. so you researched all the characters. Oh, I researched. I loved my research. I never wanted to stop. And I said to my husband, who has written nonfiction books, this is so much fun. I'm never going to write another book without research. I loved it. It was like having your security notebook all laid out for you without having to do any of the thinking yourself. There it was. It was there. These incredible stories were there for me to use. Well, each of the chapters begins with a contemporary newspaper article from the Elizabeth Daily Post. I don't know if you made up the newspaper or not. But no, we used two um, newspapers. They're now defunct, both of them. And all of the reporters, or newspaper men as they call themselves, are no longer living. Nevertheless, when it came time to use the Elizabeth Daily Journal, which was the paper in Elizabeth, and the other paper I used was the Newark Daily News, um, the lawyers at the publishing company, Secrets, called me in and said, it would be better if you didn't use either of those names. So I have had letters from people from Elizabeth who said, you got the name of the paper wrong. <laughs> And you do attribute them in the book to the newspaper man, Henry Ehrman, who's Miri's uncle. Right? Yes, well, that's where the trouble came, is that I wanted to give all these true newspaper stories. I wanted Henry, um, the young newspaper man who's going to make his name reporting tragedy, I wanted him to have the bylines. And what I was told was you can do one of two things. You can make up all the news stories and then, you know, be based on the real stories, mm -hmm. but you cannot use the real stories and attribute them to Henry Ammerman. And this came at the last moment when I was so close to the last draft of the book and I was on a really heavy-duty deadline. And I said, I can't rewrite all these newspaper stories and still make the deadline, at which point my Henry Ammerman, George Cooper, my wonderful husband, who's here somewhere. George, raise your hand. He's there. Um, George, who's a wonderful nonfiction writer, said, Judy, I can be your Henry Ammerman. And we set up a little newsroom in an apartment in New York, and we had a lot of tables. We didn't have the eye shades. But, and I, of course, got to be managing editor. And I would hand off these stories and say, George, we need this, and we need this, and it needs to be this. And we were still allowed to use the language, the descriptive language of the 50s. Yeah, some of it was stunning language. So that the plane came down like an angry, wounded bird. You don't find that in the New York Times. <laughs> or better yet, 
came apart like an exploding cream puff. Yeah. Um, you don't find that. But I really, really needed to use that. I'm Virginia Prescott, and you're listening to Writers on a New England Stage, recorded live with Judy Bloom at the Music Hall in Portsmouth. Henry is such a great character. He's Emiri's uncle. He's a lover of the truth. You know, he's a newspaper man. But he's also her champion and he really is. encourages her to write and, and stands up for her. He does. Um, did you have a Henry like that before you found this Uncle Henry? I only wish, no. <laughs> every, every young person should have an Uncle Henry in his or her life. Mm-hmm. I did not. But I think, you know, I certainly wished for someone like that, especially in the 50s when no adults told us anything. They didn't tell us the truth. They didn't tell us anything. No one ever spoke to me or any of my friends about these crashes. No one in school, it was ignored. And so you invented your own scenarios, usually worse than what really happened. In this case, maybe not so. But I longed for someone to talk to me and you know, talk to me as a real person, not as a kid. Well, this is what happens to Mary, you know, uh, the kids at school, you know, in the absence of information, they say, it's Korea, it's zombies, it's aliens, it's it's It's, Russia. It's communists. It's commies. (laughs) We were fighting in Korea then. But what the kids in school, the boys especially, came up with, you (laughs) know. What did the girls say? The girls said, sabotage. (laughs) The smart girls, and I wanted to be one. And so I agreed. It was sabotage. And then I ran to the dictionary with everyone up (laughs) and looked up the word to see what it really meant. Well, like Mary, you were in a Jewish family. Now, this all takes place, actually, the first crash is right before Christmas. Christmas, December 16th. It's all during, you know, Christmas, Hanukkah time. And and the the Jewish families are living alongside these Christian traditions. They have Jewish Santas in some of the families. And, you know, at the cosmetic department, the blue ribbon means you're Jewish, and the green ribbon means that you're you're Gentile. But, you know, it seems like a kind of fluidity and, and assimilation, and I wondered if that was your experience growing up in Elizabeth. Did you feel like an outsider as a Jewish family or part of a great community? No, no. We were so many. No, I went to school with all kinds of kids. Um, My best friend starting in seventh grade was Mary Sullivan. And Mary Sullivan is my best friend today. Oh, crazy. (laughs) From age 12 to age 78, we're still best friends. So here's a note from a listener. I grew up in Elizabeth. My question is, do you think the interplay between social classes still can exist today, or are we a more stratified people? That's a hard question. Well, you know, class plays into this book. uh, A nostalgic view of the 60s is everybody getting along and, you know, the working class man next to the businessman and all bowling together, as they did, apparently. (laughs) Do you feel like that is an accurate portrayal? I don't think um, everyone was in the same bowling league in the 50s at all. (laughs) No, I don't. I think uh, in the book, of course, there's there's Natalie who comes from a well-off family. Natalie's father was a dentist, but the money comes from the mother's side of the family. My father was a dentist. And if there's one character in the book who is inspired by a real-life person, it's the character of Dr. O, 
who is Natalie's father. Um, my father was very much that bon vivant, that loving father that all the girls wanted. And he was called in for the gruesome job of identifying victims by their dental records. Now, I knew that. I knew that my father was doing that. But, again, it was never discussed. And I wonder now, had I asked my father, because my father wanted to be that truth-telling adult to his children, had I asked him, Daddy, you know, what is it like? I do believe he would have told me something. But I never asked. And maybe that was because the message from my mother was, you know, we don't ever talk about anything of consequence. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was just a, such a different time. I mean, the, the message from my mother and from my friend's mothers, too, was be good girls. And good girls meant more than just good girls. It meant don't give us trouble. Please be happy. We just want you to be happy. You know, that's a very, very hard... That's really a burden for a kid when you know that your parents want you to be happy. And you know very well that you're not happy all the time. And you're not this girl that they want you to be, that you pretend to be for them. That's tough, but that's how it was. There was another headline, I think, that was about the winner of the posture queen contest. <laughs> that was true. So that was life. That was a real headline. At Barnard College, they had the posture queen contest. Yes. And we found this article. I think George might have found this article um, about the young woman who was the posture queen. And I can't remember now. She was interviewed and asked a lot of questions about it. <sighs> <laughs> Actually, we're going to sit up straighter now. <laughs> when, I was in fifth, when I was in fourth grade, I guess, because I was in Miami Beach when I was in fourth grade, we actually had the queen of posture. And I wanted desperately to be the queen of posture of fourth grade. And either I was or I wasn't, but I, I think maybe I was. I don't know. <laughs> well, it's, it's so evocative, this image of this young girl. She's dancing to a Nat King Cole song with a boy she doesn't know in a finished basement, um, wondering if her deodorant is working, wondering if he can feel her, what is it, his, her hidden treasure bra? Yeah, her Peter Pan <laughs> hidden treasure. Yes. Her hidden treasure bra, hoping that her mother's arpege perfume is reaching his nostrils. In her her Angora sweater. (laughs) Of course. And hoping that it will shed just a little bit onto his flannel shirt (laughs) so he'll remember her. Well, that, to me, that is the Judy Bloom thing, right? You remember exactly what, how it felt. Is it still so fresh to you? I mean, how do you conjure that? Or is it just with you? It's with me. Yeah? It's in there. Yes. You remember that hidden treasure bra? I didn't even have that. I put toilet paper in my bra. (laughs) (laughs) And I remember dancing with a boy once, and he said, what's that crunch, crunch, crunch? (laughs) And I did all those exercises, and they don't work. Did you? Did you? (laughs) 
How many girls are, how many of you said, we must, we must, we must increase our bust, right? Did it work? It worked for some, I'm sure. I kind of have no idea because maybe, you know, the pituitary gland just kicked in. I don't really know. You know, you were talking about nobody was telling the truth. And you could get inside of the mind of girls in grammar school and middle school and even, you know, rebellious wives and people who'd been married for a long time. And how do you do that? Is there a practice to that? How do these characters arrive for you? I actually have no idea how it works. Yeah? I have no idea how it works. And I'm afraid if I ever figured it out that it wouldn't work anymore. So for all these years, I, I just trust. It's, it's you go into some other part of your brain. I don't know. I always love making things up um, in a good way. <laughs> I just, I like to do that. That's the only part of writing I like. I don't like the, you know, that you have to put it all down in words. I just, I, but I like to, I like to invent people and put them together and see what happens. And there are always such surprises. That's the best part of it. You know, the surprise of it. Um, even in this book where I said I knew everything, of course I didn't know everything that first day when I started out, but the surprise of it and how they can all come together and, you know, and by the end you know all these people and all their lives are so intertwined. Someone in the audience here asks, is your writing process different when you write for children versus adults? I would say no, that the writing process is always the same, always impossibly hard. Uh, For me... I think in the beginning when I was, I had so much to come out, you know, writing changed my life. And in the beginning, it was all so spontaneous. I had no idea what I was doing. And I just, it just came. Um, when I learned more about it and after many books, I think it's, it's much harder. It's harder to be fresh. It's harder to be new and spontaneous. And if I can't be that, then I don't want to do it. And I have said this is my last long novel, not because I think I can't do it anymore. I don't want to lock myself up in that way anymore. It's so intense and it's so solitary. And I love being out with people. And, you know, I'm of a certain age. I don't want to be locked up anymore. And I don't, I think this is the book that I was meant to go out on. I just think this is the book that's been waiting for me all my professional life. And I'm just so grateful that I got to tell the story. Wow. I'm, I'm trying to contemplate a world without a Judy Bloom book coming out. Oh, you can just read an old one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying I'll never write anything. I really don't know, but I'm certainly... You know, this was going to be my gap year, mm-hmm. and I was going to sit and read, and instead we've opened a bookstore. And so there goes gap year, and it's very exciting and wonderful and new and fresh and creative, and I'm just loving it. Mm. That sounds like a great venture, especially after you, you've had a hard time in the book world in some ways. I mean, of course, you sold 82 million books, 
32 languages, I believe, in translation, had your books banned. You have been picketed. As recently as 2009, you got death threats, hate mail. Your publisher sent you out with a bodyguard. That was fun. (laughs) No, actually... um, Did you have any say in this bodyguard uh, selection? (laughs) No, and George was with me too. But he was a very, very nice guy. You know, I got 700 and something death threats, but I was going out on tour and um, they said things like, we know where you'll be. Mm. We know when you'll be in Houston. We know when you'll be in Dallas. We know when you'll be in L.A. You know, it was a little scary for, not so much, I guess, for me as for, the publisher didn't want anything to happen on their watch. You know, so they sent this um, very nice guy. It's very quiet. It's like, how is he doing this? Is he packing? What is he doing? (laughs) He was just lovely. A lovely, lovely man. But do you think the threats now or the kind of vitriol, instant death threats, maybe it's the circulation on the Internet, but... Is the threat now worse than it was in this past, the 70s and 80s, when people were talking about banning your books and burning them? I think it's maybe more serious now. Here's the thing. I mean, I signed a letter for Planned Parenthood. I'm a big supporter of Planned Parenthood. And thank you. And I I agree. And I signed a letter that was coming out around Mother's Day. And it was this Mother's Day, if you can, give a donation in honor of Planned Parenthood. My son liked that letter so much that he actually donated to Planned Parenthood because this was something he could do for me for Mother's Day. Do this for your mom. And because of that letter, there's some organization somewhere that told their supporters this is the letter that you should write to Judy and, and you should threaten her and, you know. And who knows? I mean, I don't know. You just don't know anymore, do you? No. But you don't want to be afraid to do what you think is right and to speak out when you think you should. I'm Virginia Prescott, and you're listening to Writers on a New England Stage, recorded live with Judy Bloom at the Music Hall in Portsmouth. There was, at least initially, a mostly conservative response against your books for sexuality, for questioning the presence of God, and are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. More recently, you have criticized a practice especially popular at liberal colleges and universities, trigger warnings. Do you all know what trigger warnings are? It's basically, you know, they put a caution on books or or book lists saying this could be potentially upsetting content. And this is a growing practice, especially in colleges and universities. So, So do you think that kind of liberal sensitivity is overtaking conservatism or replacing it in some way? I I just have to double back and say one thing. In Mm. the 70s, nobody came after my books in the 70s. Oh, sorry. It didn't start until the presidential election of 1980. Um, A lot of people came out, and the American Library Association would tell you that uh, challenges to books quadrupled overnight. It was like, okay, now it's our turn 
to say if we don't want our children to read this book, then no child should be able to read this book. That's what was going on in the 80s that was so tough. Trigger warnings, I hate trigger warnings. You're in college, you're there to learn. You're there to question. How can, how can you be told, oh, poor baby, maybe you shouldn't read this book because it will trigger something that happened to you once. Come on, no, no, I just cannot deal with that. When I was in college, I went to NYU, it was a long time ago, and I was in some course, I don't remember what it was, but they showed a movie of a live birth. This was fascinating, a live birth. Two young women students ran out screaming and crying. That was their right to do that. But the rest of us got to see this movie of a live birth. So, you know, today it would be warning. We are about to show a film in this class that may be very upsetting to you, and so maybe you shouldn't come, right? Maybe you shouldn't read this book because you could be upset. I don't know. <laughs> At 12, I was in my parents' bookshelves reading whatever I wanted to read, and my, my mother was a very anxious and fearful person. One thing she was never afraid of was what I was reading. Reading was a good thing in our house. Reading was something to be proud of. Isn't this great? Our daughter is reading. Our daughter likes books. Whatever the books were, I didn't understand them necessarily, but I read them and I learned a lot about the adult world. What were you reading at 12? <laughs> what did I find in the bookshelves yes. at 12? I found, um, I found Saul Bellow's The Adventure of, of Augie March. Mm -hmm. I read that a lot of times. There was a very hot scene in it. <laughs> and, and all I remember about that scene was something about a picnic and a blanket and an eagle. You can take it from me. <laughs> I found um, the stories of John O'Hara, loved them, went on to read all of O'Hara. Anne Rand, I found Anne Rand. I didn't know that I wasn't supposed to like her then. <laughs> I didn't know she would be politically incorrect, but I just knew that I was reading a good story. It was The Fountainhead, mm -hmm. and um, it was a good story. Well, a number of people are asking about which writers were most influential or formative to you. Well, actually, when I started to write children's books, which is what I started to write, um, there were a couple of books that really were, and authors, who really were my inspiration. And um, Beverly Cleary, above all others. You know, she just celebrated her 100th birthday. No. And we had, we had um, a big table of her books at our store with a happy birthday, Beverly, oh. which is fabulous. And Louise Fitzhugh's, um, Louise Fitzhugh's Harriet the Spy was inspirational for me. And there was one other, and that was the first book by um, E.L. Konigsberg, and it's a, such a long title, 
Jennifer Hecate, Macbeth, William McKinley, I don't know, and Me Elizabeth, something like that. Those were the books that really spoke to me. That's, I said to those books, I want to write books like these, like yours. This is what I want to write. Um, so they were very important to me. I heard an interview with this uh, journalist, I think her name is Nancy Jo Sales, and about Girls in Social Media, American Girls is the name of the book. And she was being interviewed on Terry Gross, and she was talking about, you know, like, when we were kids and we didn't know what was going on, there was a Judy Bloom book for that, right? <laughs> but now it's sort of like sexting, online shaming, getting solicitations from boys for naked photographs. There is no Judy Bloom book for that. And there won't be. You're never going to write no. that book. <laughs> That's like, um, uh, I get letters from women who say, please, please write a book about Margaret in menopause. <laughs> and I'm not, Margaret will always be 12. And I, you know, I don't, I don't know enough about this new way that kids are growing up. I don't want to write about that. I have a lot of younger friends who are writing um, children's books. Will they write about it? Maybe they will. I mean, you know, I, no. That's why I loved writing about the 50s, because I knew, I remembered, I knew what I was doing. And the, and the human side doesn't change. You know, the, what we are inside doesn't change. It's just the externals that change. And kids do have to make a lot of decisions today that are different from the decisions we had to make. You know, we hear so much about the sexting and the slut shaming and all of that. It's, it's not true for all kids. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's out there and it has to be talked about and parents can help kids, I think, by talking about it and saying, what, what do you do if this happens? The best thing is to stay off all that stuff. Stay off it. Don't look. Well, good luck getting your kids to stay off it. Yeah, well, I know. Did you ever think your novels would be as timeless as they are? And I just have to add the PS, which is so sweet. Thank you for making me feel normal as a Aww. young girl. Thank you. But that's it. I mean, did you... Thank you, wherever you are. Thank you. Um, Timeless is not something I ever thought about. If you had asked me then, do you think that you'll be sitting around on stage in 2016 and there will be people who still read your books or know your books? I, I would have thought you were crazy. No. No, I never... I think if you think about being timeless when you write, you're in big trouble. There's a, you can't think about anything when you go into that room to write about what you're trying to do. I think it just, it doesn't work that way. Not with fiction, anyway. It just doesn't. People really are asking about this theme. If you wrote, Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, in 2016, does it change your perspective? Uh, well... I'm not going to, so <laughs> I guess, you know, if, if, you, if you wrote um, about a young woman today turning 12, I don't know that it couldn't be her story. 
It could still be her story. Minus the belts. Minus the belts. You know what? The belts went away within months of that book being published. (laughs) Gone forever. And I... And I have a lot of trouble with the purists who like my books. I changed it to sticky pads or whatever they are. (laughs) As soon as the British actually are the ones who said to me, my British publisher, why don't you get rid of the belts? Just not change the book, just change the product. (laughs) And I thought, what a good idea. And so I did. Um, And I promised the purists who are angry at me for that, that in, in the unlikely event taking place in the 50s, I would give them a belt. Oh. Well, I'm guessing, you know, I'm, I'm just reading through these notes, and when I told people that I was interviewing you, I can't tell you how many people said, tell her she saved my life, you know, tell her I had scoliosis, and she made all the difference to me reading Dini, or, you know, she made me want to read. I mean, people project a lot on you. I mean, one woman here says, or one, I'm assuming it's a woman, maybe that's erroneous. You practically raised me. Oh, that's sweet. But so when this My readers are so sweet. (laughs) You all, I assume you're all my readers. And so thank you so much. You know what? They've given me, they have given me every bit as much as they think I've given them. Because writing Really, it didn't just change my life, it saved my life. It really, really did. All you have to do is call and What advice do you have for a starting young writer, songwriter, poet? And she's 13. Oh, just keep going and don't let anybody discourage you. Do not let anyone discourage you. It can be very tough to keep going when um, you don't get support. Um, you know, and also you don't necessarily have to show your work to anybody. You can just keep it for yourself, and you just keep going. The choice is yours to show it or not to show it. I'm really weird about showing my work to anybody until I'm absolutely ready. So, Do you, do you have a memorable failure in your career as a writer, and how did you overcome it? Well, sure. Gosh. You have to have failure... Yeah, I I mean, I think one of the worst moments was a review of a book that was particularly personal and to me, which was my most autobiographical book starring Sally J. Friedman as herself. And, And a reviewer for Publishers Weekly, who later apologized to me, said she lost her lunch because she came to the part where the kid brings home a takeout way back in the 40s from a Chinese restaurant and opens it up. It's in Miami Beach. There were a lot of bugs. And there was a roach on top, and she said she lost her lunch. And so she gave the book a terrible review. And when I read that review, um, it was so painful that I had a big Selectric typewriter. And I lifted it up, it was heavy, and I, I lived in New Mexico, and I carried it out, and I held it over the 
canyon. Uh, I was going to drop it into the arroyo. And I was crying. And, you know, at the last minute, I pulled it back. And I said, no, you can't let one person stop you from doing this. I mean, reviews can be very painful. Some people are really good, and they don't read their reviews. I read them. (laughs) And I, you know, used to put red stars next to the good ones. I kept them in a scrapbook. This was a long time ago. And I used to write certain words on others, but I kept them all. (laughs) You know, I don't want to give boys short shrift here, because I know you've written for boys, right? I have many young Male, male readers. Yeah, yes. Um, then again, maybe I won't, and super fudge come to mind for well, me. Well, it doesn't have to be about a guy, you right? know. You want to learn about girls? You read about them. Ah, I just actually heard an interview with Juno Diaz, who oh, I guess I did a Juno. reading <laughs> of uh, Dini on, on stage, and he said, that he said exactly that. He said, I had three sisters. This was a roadmap for me. <laughs> <laughs> He's sweet. Again, we're getting a lot more from you than we got from the school nurse. Let's put it that way. <laughs> was it ever your mission? Did you ever decide, like, I need to write about this? You know, I'm, I'm choosing an issue. Here, uh, it's anorexia in the most recent book that comes up, or racism, or uh, shaming, or bullying. Fiction doesn't work, I think, when you try to do issues. Mm. I never tried to do issues, although people think that I did. But um, in telling a story like Blubber, which to me is a book that I'm most proud of, we didn't even have the word bullying then. It wasn't part of our vocabulary. We called it victimization in the classroom. I know bullying goes way, way back, but it wasn't there when my kids were in school. It was happening but that's not what it was called. And I really, really wanted to tell a true story about the school bus culture and being in fifth grade. And basically, she was a mean girl. We didn't Mm -hmm. say mean girls then either, but that's what she was. I can't remember her name. What was her name? Well, the the one who played along or the lead girl? The The lead girl. The lead girl, Oh. Wendy. Wendy. Her name was Wendy. The mean girl was Wendy. Yes. Although, I did hear a funny story about your daughter asking you to write. Did you write forever because your daughter asked you to write something? Yeah, when she was about 14, she was reading a lot of books that a librarian friend of mine called the pregnant books. If a girl succumbs, something terrible is going to happen to her. She is going to die a gruesome death. Um have an illegal abortion that causes the gruesome death. Um, Nothing good is going to happen. Boys didn't have feelings. Girls didn't have sexual feelings. And my daughter said to me, Mother, she said, couldn't there be a book about two nice kids who do it and nobody dies? (laughs) And I thought, if this is what she's reading and learning from books, I wanted to tell a story about two nice kids responsible who take responsibility for their actions and nobody dies. 
I'm Virginia Prescott, and you're listening to Writers on a New England Stage with Judy Bloom, recorded with our live partner, the Music Hall, at their historic theater in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. If you weren't a writer, uh, one member of the audience asked, what would you be? Well, when I was growing up, I wanted to be a cowgirl. Um, and my bike was my horse. I never rode a horse in my life. But you will see if you read In the Unlikely Event, a time came, well, I, shouldn't, I don't want to do any spoilers, but I might have gone west with my family <laughs> to live, and I might have then had my own horse. But in the meantime, I had my trusty Schwinn blue and white bicycle, and I had a gun. I had, I had a little plastic gun and, um, and an actress. I wanted to be a movie star. I want Mary Sullivan and I, best friend, seventh grade, we wanted to go on the stage together. I have to tell you, here I am. I'm on the stage. <laughs> writing, writing is a lot like acting, I think, although I've never acted professionally, but you get to be all these people. You get to play all these roles. And not only that, but you get to produce and direct and you pretty much have control over the whole thing. <laughs> and it's very satisfying. You said something about the uncertainty of putting your books out there. And I read something about how you were unsure, you sometimes felt insecure about, you know, what would readers think when your book goes out there in the world? Is that true? Absolutely. If, I think every writer is insecure. I mean, we would have to be how you have no idea this thing that's been in your life for one year or three years or five years and these characters who are so close to you and suddenly you put them out there and you don't know what's going to happen. Oh, and with Summer Sisters, I'll just tell you quickly, with Summer Sisters, just before it was going to be published, I knew it was going to be the end of my wonderful career and I said to George, please, please, can we give back the advance? You know, the publisher pays you in advance before your book comes out. Can we give back the advance and stop publication? Because I know that this book is going to be such a failure. I just know it. And George said, well, Judy, probably it's too late for that. But you could just leave the country and come back after it's published and it's all over and then you'll never have to know. And of course, Summer Sisters was my most successful book ever. <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? You just don't know. Okay, is there anything we can do to convince Judy Bloom that we are really looking forward to the next Judy Bloom book, whatever it may be? I appreciate that very much. Um, but you're not going to make me feel guilty. <laughs> Judy Bloom there, closing out what she told us afterwards was to be her last book tour interview ever. I'm done, she told us. Well, all of us on the Writers on a New England stage team are thrilled that we could have captured this historic finale. It is bittersweet to think of what future audiences will be missing. 
Writers on a New England Stage is a co-production of NHPR and the Music Hall in Portsmouth. Executive producer and live stage presentation director is Patricia Lynch. Associate producer and communications director, Margaret Talcott. New Hampshire Public Radio's president is Betsy Gardella. NHPR's Maureen McMurray produced the broadcast. NHPR digital producer, Sarah Plord. Live sound and recording engineer is Ian Martin, with special thanks to Andrew Perella at NHPR. Musical director and band for the live show is Bob Lord and Dreadnought. And to see some wonderful shots of the forever young Judy Bloom on stage, go to Clear Eye Photo. To hear other authors from the series, visit nhpr.org and click on the Writers on a New England Stage link or download a podcast and share these programs with your friends. I'm Virginia Prescott from all of us at NHPR in the Music Hall. Thank you for listening to this potentially epic broadcast. Judy, I can't believe sometimes that I'm an adult And the girls like I was think that I have this figured out Thank mm-hmm. you.